when I was uh, first starting out in uh, youth ministry, I phoned up the president of our denomination, and I said, hey, I'd like to meet you for coffee. Like, who does that, right? I'm just the guy, and I'm in Picture Butte, Alberta, a town of 1,600 people, about. And he says, well, okay, I'll meet you in Brooks, how about? So Brooks is kind of like the little Texas. You can smell it from miles away, if you know what I'm talking about. And uh, there I met him in McDonald's. He says, uh, so what's your name again? I said, Steve. He said, so what is that you'd like to meet me about? Well, I'd kind of like your job, but kind of in the youth department, I said. So it was kind of, he smiles at me, and we started to chat a little bit about it. And, uh, and then we started this relationship, and he was saying, put something on my desk. I'm interested in what you're talking about. So over the years, we started having this conversation back and forth, and it was really neat and encouraging some of the things in where he was saying, well, let's work on this together and all that. I was invited to a, a national leadership prayer um, get-together. So I was like pumped, like, wow, this is my big break here. And I go across the line, it's in Sumas, and there I was actually asked to speak on um, part of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So I started, I, I only had like six minutes or something odd like that, and I came up and I started by talking about a story. And what happened in the story is a guy was taking his dog for a walk. And he rounded the, uh, the back alley and came around the hotel slash bar in a small town. And there's two women there. And uh, the women stopped him and grabbed him by the lapel. And they say, hey, baby, you, you know, and as you can guess by the dot, 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 what she wanted, right? And the guy says, oh, you got the wrong guy. And he says, oh, but nobody's going to know. Why don't we just, you know, and grabbed him by the lapel again. And finally he says, you, you got the wrong guy. And he takes off down the street, goes around back through into his uh, house, turns off all the lights, falls on his knees and cries out, oh, God. And that was me. Right? I was a single guy being propositioned. Nobody would know in the back alleys of the metropolis of Picture Butte. No one would know. But I knew in my heart that I had been tempted by a, a millisecond. So I'm sharing this story, and then I'm t talking to the whole national leadership team, and then I ask everybody to go back to back, and then let's pray against the, any uh, influence of the evil one, that we watch each other's back, that I got eyes behind me, beside me, and all that stuff, and we prayed. And then right after that, during that same meeting, uh, I took off, and the next day or two, it was found out that the guy that was helping me carry my dream, the guy that was listening to my stories, actually had given in to the tug on his lapel and he had fallen to moral temptation and to be honest with that went my dream why is it that when th good things are happening god-sized stuff is happening it seems as though we're so susceptible to failing why is it i was sitting at starbucks not that long ago and I was with this guy, and uh, he, his phone rings, and he kind of looks at it like this, and he goes, oh, Steve again. Not this guy this time, but he says, oh, Steve again, and he's pressing silent. And I said, Steve, what did you say, Steve who? Steve Fanyo. What? Like, I know that name, right? Like, I'm going, that sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, and he goes on to talk. And it's really interesting because do you remember Steve Fanyo? All right, still around, so this is not an illustration to... Uh, to slander at all, but I'm trying to give a little point here. Um, Steve Fanyo, I remember him, and it jogged my memory that this guy is a hero. Is a hero? Was a hero? Hmm. 
And Steve Fonu, he's actually a cross-Canada runner, and he actually uh, ran even further than uh, Terry Fox, and that's obviously because uh, cancer finally overcame Terry Fox. But Steve Fonu did an amazing, amazing feat. Born in 65, he's a Canadian man who lost his left leg to cancer at age 12. He later embarked on a cross-Canada marathon entitled The Journey for Lives to raise funds for cancer research. In doing so, he followed in the footsteps of Terry Fox, and he completed a coast-to-coast -coast marathon and also completed a marathon across the United Kingdom. With this marathon on March 31st, 84, uh, at the age of 18, he completed it on May 29th in 1985, covering 7,924 kilometers. Wow. And raising $14 million. We're talking in the 80s. This is incredible. He persevered, and he was actually named an officer of the Order of Canada in 1985. But now has lost it. But now has lost it. And then as I researched just a little bit, I came across, uh, instantly I came across a, um, one of the top hits on the internet that he's back in court on assault charges, and he's had struggles over and over again with uh, money, with drugs and alcohol, with assault charges, dot, dot, dot. I'm not airing his dirty laundry. I'm just saying, Steve, buddy, what happened? What happened? And I want you to know that it could happen to any one of us here. So we got to pay attention. In fact, when I used to go to Union Gospel Mission in, in New Westminster, we would be coming toward the gate, and there, uh, as we finally got led into the building, I'd hear people mumbling, oh, all right, it's White Rock. Fantastic, it's White Rock. And they were pumped because we had kids coming, we had youth group coming, we had all sorts of people coming. And I believe one of the ways that why they were pumped that we were coming is because whenever we spoke, whenever we served, whenever we preached, we didn't preach at. We kind of preached with. Because my take on it was I, too, could be one or two decisions away from also needing Union Gospel Mission. So here, why is it that a guy that has been given the Order of Canada, that has raised so much money, that did incredible feats, what is it that took him out? And I want to ask the same today. When it comes to us, when it comes to the stories that you know, what is it that could take you out? Or how is it even a better question, what is it that can keep us in the game? I know whenever I chat with Ken, whenever I talk with other pastors, it's just each one of us wants to finish well. But I want to go beyond that. Because Kevin, Ken even said it today, that each one of us gets to pass the baton. So it's not just looking at pastors here today, not just looking at church leaders. You, your faith, how is it that you can pass the baton and hopefully pass the baton faithfully without dropping it? So let's pray before we jump in. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you for incredible guys like the one that mentored me from the Evangelical Free Church of Canada. And I thank you that he has been restored, and I pray even for restoration for Steve Fanyo. Thank you for him and what he's done. And we ask, Lord, that uh, any of the grips that are on him right now would be released, and he would come back to uh, contributing to his society. And more than that, that he would come to a saving, vital faith in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, today I just ask that you would be with us and help us to learn from Nehemiah that, Lord, you are up to something. And when you are up to something... We get to be a part of it, but also when, we're up, when you're up to something, the devil seems to take notice, and there seems to be traps, obstacles, and opposition all along the way. Help us out, Lord. 
Help us to pay attention and help us, Lord, to pass the baton of faith so that others can pick it up after us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to continue on in our series today, Nehemiah chapter 6. And thus far, I think it's been a really exciting go at uh, what Nehemiah has done and what God has done through him to the glory of God. So here we go, Nehemiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1 all the way to verse 4. When, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Jeshem, the, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in, in the gates, Sanballat and Jeshem sent me this message. Come on, come. Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop and I leave it to go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Isn't it interesting that the very guys that I just talked about, Sanballat and Tobiah, the Jeshim and the Arabs and all that, these guys were obviously totally against the project. They loved it that the Israelites stayed in fear. They loved it that they were a people without identity, a people without protection, and a people that never knew when exile was right upon them. They loved it to see these people in fear because they could tax them anytime they wanted. They could stroll by with their armies, with their horses and chariots, and the Israelites would, would kind of crumble in fear. And now all of a sudden they see that all of their tactics are not working. They can't seem to discourage Nehemiah. He says the work will go on. Why would I stop the work to come down and have chat with you? I'm sorry. I'm up to something. In fact, God is up to something and something good. I'm not coming down to you. So when the word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jeshem the Arab, that, and the rest of the enemies, that uh, Nehemiah had rebuilt the wall, and there was no gap, gap left, even though the gates weren't in it yet, they came up with a different strategy. No longer would they be an obvious um, obstacle. No longer would there be obvious op opposition. But now they just said, well, wait a second here. You know what? Why don't we meet together? Why don't we have coffee together? Let's talk about this. It's a very interesting strategy. They offered actually to cooperate with the Jewish people and maybe help them build the wall. You know what? I got some wood. I got some connections. Why don't we build this together? And it's kind of interesting because they realized their tactics, which were right in their face, was not working. So now instead of being an obvious opposition, they decided to be undercover, coerce, under the radar. Maybe we'll help you. It's interesting. Adolf Hitler said, he, he wrote, mental confusion, contradiction of feeling, indecisiveness, panic. These are our weapons. Hitler was no dummy either. Mental confusion, contradiction of feeling, indecisiveness, panic. These are our weapons. This is what is happening to the people of, uh, in Nehemiah's day. And you need to remember that things are not rosy. They're talking about a famine here. We're talking about a people without identity. They're talking, this has happened before with Ezra. And uh, the governor has changed, has, uh, uh, sorry, the king had also pulled out all the stops at one point and they had to stop building the wall. So these people were not sitting in comfort 
These people had fear, and they knew what fear smelled like and tasted like. So to them, this was a real threat. They offered to meet Nehemiah in a village about halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria, a little quiet little place where we can make plans and how we can work together. We're willing to meet you halfway. Isn't that interesting? Sanballat and Tobiah, we're, we're willing to meet you halfway. And why do I keep saying this? It's because compromise is so often the enemy of what God has called you to do. If God has called you to something, one of the big things that's going to happen is not the devil coming in the back door with his red suit and pointy tail. Not at all. It's compromise to the vision that God has called you to. And here we see Nehemiah sniffing it out. And what, what does Revelation say to even in this? In one of the churches, he's saying, you know what? I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. I spit you out of my mouth. And that's what he's calling them to, lukewarmness, to compromise. We will help you with the work. But Nehemiah sniffed it out a thousand miles away. So the enemy uses uh, compromise, but he also uses slander and intimidation. Let me read this for you in the next verses. Then the fifth time, so we first of all talked about four times he's gotten letters. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Unsealed letter, very interesting, got to pay attention to detail here. In which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Jeshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore, you're building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. Aha, there is king of Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So, in essence, you better come. Come on, let's meet together. Verse 8. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They're all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, Lord, strengthen my hands. It's interesting because most of the time when there was uh, some kind of letter from a king or from a governor, it was sealed. And when it got to the person that was supposed to receive it, that seal was broken. And that was a big deal. But here it's interesting that an unsealed letter was given because it wasn't really sent to Nehemiah. It was sent to the people. It was so supposed to be read aloud so that, imagine here, if somebody came in here and gave me a letter that was meant for me, but it was unsealed so anybody could read it, and it was read out loud, and it was bad news. It was news perhaps against me, against some of you, against the elders of our church. Now all of a sudden some of you are going, well, gee, I didn't know that about Steve. I didn't know that about Ron, the chairman. Sheesh, and then all of a sudden there's all sorts of stuff planted in your head. Doubt, disillusionment, and fear. It's brilliant tactic. First of all, he's after compromise, but now he's using slander and intimidation, reading it aloud so that everybody will start to scratch their head about leadership. And I'm so glad that there's fantastic verses in Scripture that talk about even church discipline. How you just don't, can't come and gang up on a guy. It's really important with our leaders, not only myself, but I'm saying with people in general, that when there is a rumor or when there is something that's suspect, that it's substantiated and you need to talk to a person privately 
and then you need to get one or two together. And then finally, if it really is substantiated and a person is not listening, we know it from Matthew 18, that finally it goes to a bigger crowd. But there is a specific way of going about uh, rebuking or admonishing or restoring people. And the scripture is clear in Matthew 18 about that. But here in Nehemiah, he's using public display or he's using public slander to hopefully uh, plant doubt in the ears and the minds of those that were working with Nehemiah. And I'm guessing, we're not sure, but I'm guessing it was working. I'm guessing it worked for some people. I know there's a lot of people that were still building, a lot of people still protecting, a lot of people still understood the vision that God had given Nehemiah, but there's a good chance that many of them were starting to scratch their head going, yeah, I'm not too sure about this Nehemiah guy much anymore. It would be considered a serious charge in Nehemiah's day because Persian kings tolerated no resistance from their subjects. So when he was saying to them in the letter that if I heard that you're trying to become king, that you're trying to go against the king of Persia, if that went back to the king of Persia, heads would roll. My friend, not only is this important what Nehemiah is called to, but also who Nehemiah is. Let me back up. Nehemiah knew he was called of God to do this great work, and he knew who he was. A few Sundays ago, I tried to get this across to you, and I preach it to myself big time. It's so important that we know who we are in Christ. Because if you don't know who you are in Christ, there's a good chance you're sucking out your identity from your mate or from your good friends. You surround yourself by people, and if you're really that insecure, you'll suck the life out of other people so that you can feel good. It is so important here, and it seems that Nehemiah has this. He knows who he is in God. He knows that he is one of God's chosen ones here, and he has a vision from the Lord, and he stands tall on that. It would be so easy to give it up. Why not? I mean, the project was almost done. Why not just say, you guys take over. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my cushy wine-tasting job. But it's interesting because he also relied on his integrity because the king of Persia knew him. He obviously was a man of integrity. He obviously was a man that lived truthfully in front of the king because he... he at least he took faith in that knowing that if, the, if this went back to the king of Persia, he too would say, yeah, right, not Nehemiah. He'd never do something like this. There's a hint for us too. How important it is to live our lives with integrity so that when big things come up, some people might question you, but on the whole, people know you and know, no, this would not happen. We know him too well. He used this open letter <clears throat> as an attack against the work, hoping to shut down the work, hoping to undermine Nehemiah's reputation and authority. If some of the Jewish workers believed what was in the letter, Sanballat could organize them and create division within the ranks. It was a splendid opportunity for the enemy to divide and conquer. You know what I'm saying? If there's even 15 here and maybe three over there, it would have been just fantastic. And we actually see it in just a little bit that there's one or two people uh, that were in the ranks that were starting to question and probably the pockets were lined by Sanballat and Tobiah. And they were wondering, you know what, I'm not 
too terribly much into this vision. I don't think it's going to happen anyway. So this is a perfect strategy of the evil one that we saw a couple weeks ago, that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus Christ has come to give life, and life to what? Right. So one of the ways that he wants to work in your life, he wants to separate you by discouragement, distraction, by whatever it is. He wants to separate you. In fact, you may have even been offended by somebody in the church this is one that that drives me crazy because hey i got offended by some of you and i'm sure i offend some of you and it's it's just a perfect way of the devil just going you know what steve why don't you feel sorry for yourself and then i move over here and then i'm just james is really getting on my nerves i don't want to see james every week so i stop coming to church and all that stuff maybe start going to different church and all that stuff and uh, then i just start don't going to church anymore And the evil one is smacking his lips because he wants to sift you. He wants to separate you just like he does with a sheep. And then the wolves attack and go for the jugular. That is really what he's after, hoping to intimidate and slander so that this whole wall deal will fall apart and not be completed. So not only does he use compromise, hey, why don't we meet together and talk this over? or slander, intimidation, but he also uses threats and deceit. And with this, I'm going to use, use a different Bible translation. I'm going to use the message. So threats and deceit. Uh, let me read. Then I met secretly with Shemaiah, son of Dalia, the son of Mehetabel. Woohoo! Any baby names out there? There's a book to go to. At this house, and he said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Come on, let's find safety behind locked doors. Because they're coming to kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're coming by night to kill you. And Nehemiah said, why would a man like me run for cover? And why would a man like me use the temple as a hideout? I I won't do it. And I sensed that God had not sent this man. The so-called prophecy he spoke to me was the work of Tobiah and Sanballat. They had hired him. They had hired him. He had been hired to scare me off, to trick me, a layman, to trick me, a layman, Nehemiah, into desecrating the temple and ruining my good reputation so they could accuse me. Oh, my God. Don't let Tobiah and Sanballat get by with all this mischief they've done. And the same goes for the prophetess um, Noadiah and the other prophets who have been trying to undermine my confidence. This is clever. So this we see Sanballat and and Tobiah finally hiring somebody and going about this again under the radar. And this guy goes, come with me, Nehemiah, come with me. Let's hide together in the temple because they're after my life and they're after yours. Here, we need you. You're the leader of this. This is an incredible vision and God obviously wants to spare your life. So come on in the temple and we're going to hide and we're going to keep you protected so nothing bad happens to you and the work can go on. brilliant again because what was happening is they were paying a guy off to give a false prophecy and this guy knew first of all that if if nehemiah would come into the temple he was breaking one of the laws one of the commandments because he did not belong past a certain point in the temple so he was actually getting him or trying to get him to sin he was trying to tempt nehemiah to run away in verse 11 
should such a man as I flee? Should I run away? And you know, if you've read the book of Nehemiah over and over again, he says, would I run away? Would I take off? This is the Lord's work. The almighty hand of God is in this work. And he was trying to tempt Nehemiah not only to run away, but also if he had hidden in the temple and broken the, the laws of the covenant, he would have ruined his reputation. He would have ruined his reputation. And that's another way. Coming back to integrity. If God has called you to something, one of the ways that the evil one wants to mess with it is to bring your reputation into considerable doubt. You know it takes a long time to build up a credible name, a name of character. It only takes a moment to lose it. Only takes a moment to lose it. Nehemiah rejected Shemaiah's proposal because it was contrary to the law. Because the layman was not to go beyond the altar of the burnt offering at the temple. Numbers 18 says, the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So we see some of the, the, the obvious ones. You all know about compromise. You all know about slander and intimidation, right? You all know about the different ways that the, the evil one threats and deceit that are kind of obvious. But the fourth one that we see in verses 15 to 19 is a little different. Let me read here. Verses 15 to 19. <coughs> So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and they lost their confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan uh, had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Barakiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling, telling him what I said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. One of the first things that I, or one of the next things that I want you to see is one of the strategies that he uses is not only the obvious compromise or the threats and deceits, but I, something that I've kind of called the afterglow of victory. You know, when you've accomplished something pretty cool for the Lord, and you're going, yes, praise God. That, that, was, that was awesome. And then you sit down. Wasn't that, wasn't that incredible? I just thank the Lord for his faithfulness, and no longer are you on guard. God has done something marvelous and no longer are you standing firm or no longer are you paying attention because you're just enjoying the glory that has been accomplished through this. And then suddenly, and I'm sure you know this from your own experience, suddenly, or shall I say even gradually, it happens that when you're in a place of victory, when you've sensed that this great victory over addiction or a habit, or you've come through something in your marriage, it's just like, ah, and you relax. And then all of a sudden you let your guard down. You let your guards down. We sit back and we take it easy after we have experienced victory. How many times did the Israelites forget to praise God after they had uh, not experienced hardship for a while? Taking your foot off the gas pedal when things are going well. 
over and over and over again, we can look at the Israelites and say, oh, really? God just put you, brought you through the Red Sea? What? Look, look, look what he did. He, a, a manna from heaven this is incredible. How in the world did you ever stop praising the Lord? Well, how many of us have experienced the incredible power of God through sometimes him paying off a bill that we had no idea where the money was going to come from? Or when our kid comes back to know the Lord? Or when our marriage is repaired and we go, praise God. But then within a few weeks, we've kind of forgotten that God has done anything marvelous in our lives. I've said it before, but I got to say it again. In Romans 1, it's very interesting that people that were finally where God says, hands off. Okay, I give you over to your own lusts and desires. That started with people not giving glory to God and no longer being thankful. Thanksgiving is a big deal. The Scottish minister Andrew A. Bernard said, Let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. Let us be watchful after the victory as before the battle. Or if you're a Mennonite, uh, let us then be watchful after the victory as before the battle then yet. Aaron? Yeah, he's saying here, Bonaire, the Scottish minister, is saying, be watchful after the victory, just as much as before the battle. Because in the afterglow of victory, that's also when the devil can strike or the enemy can strike with pride. Or you're not paying attention anymore. We're not watching each other's backs. We're not praying over one another. And we can coast. And we can coast. It's interesting because the completion of the walls was kind of an embarrassment for Sanballat and Tobiah because it was working. And they're going, oh, this is bad because we're going to lose taxes, we're going to lose power. And it's kind of embarrassing because it's working. So another tactic that they're using is trying to get them to quit when they're almost done or perhaps even get them while uh, they're in this glow of victory. Satan is always looking for an opportune time. We know this from Luke uh, 4, verse 13, to attack the victors and then turn them into victims. There's a good chance that if you can't see Satan working or the enemy working, that he may be subtly working underground. He's off the radar. And I want you to pay attention to that because some of you have obviously seen discouragement and distress. You've seen stuff that was so obvious to you and now perhaps you don't. And I think we need to question, is there a chance that there's something subtle going on in my life or I have taken my foot off the gas pedal that I'm not no longer looking toward that vision that God has given me, that I'm no longer part of what God wants to do among us. Watch and pray, he says in Nehemiah 4 verse 9. Watch and pray, watch and pay, be on the alert. I want to conclude with Corinthians. Coming from also the message, it's a neat way of saying, he says, don't become partners with those who reject God. How can you make a partnership out of right and wrong? That's not partnership. That's war. So for those of you that are uh, pre-message, do not be unequally yoked. How in the world can an unequally yoked partnership be a partnership it's a war is light best friends with dark 
Does Christ go strolling with the devil? Do trust and mistrust hold hands? Who would think of setting up pagan idols in God's holy temple? But that is exactly what we are. Each of us is a temple in whom God lives. God himself put it this way. I will live in them and move in them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So leave the corruption and the compromise. Leave it for good, says God. Don't link up with those who will pollute you. I want you all for myself. I'll be a father to you. You will be my sons. You will be my daughters. 2 Corinthians 6.14 My friends, compromise, slander, intimidation, these are all tactics that are still alive and well today, including the afterglow of victory, and these are things that can still make you drop the baton today. Take you out of the race today. So, I want to share with you just three short points of what Ortberg has has given that I think we can use to contemplate, we can use to battle. First of all, we can do one of three things here. We can live contrary to what God has made you for. So if you're sitting there today going, you know what, this makes no sense, I don't want to be a part of it, you can scoff it off, you can just simply turn your back and avoid self-examination and become like everybody else. You can become part of the culture because it's much easier to become part of what everybody else is doing. Turn your back on God, whatever God. That's the first thing you could do today. Or another option would be maybe keep, your, keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Uh, so Ortberg says, get sporadic spiritual input. Go to church just sometimes. Read the Bible once in a while, but without clarity about how you want it to shape your mind. Pray sporadically, just when you're in trouble. But then mostly fill your mind with the things of, that everybody else in culture fills their minds with. Just keep spiritual channel surfing. I like that. Just keep ch- channel surfing spiritually. So your first one is just turn your back, whatever. Second one is, you know, one foot in the church, one foot a little bit with God, and one foot just so you don't lose touch with what's going on and all the fun. Or thirdly, you can make your mind a dwelling place of God. Paul puts it like this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. Those are the kind of the three options that I see here. Turn your back on all this, way too much work. I'm sure Nehemiah probably was tempted. Or Nehemiah, why don't we just compromise? Why don't you take part of the uh, taxes and then we can all be happy? compromise or thirdly uh, make a resolve that your mind and your heart will be the dwelling place of God and what he is calling us to as his people we will not turn our backs on that we will not compromise we will not be a part of slander in fact I'm going to throw this out there and we will also work toward this together because sometimes some of the slander some of the hard times some of the gossip comes from even within the church Brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things. My friend Brent from Alberta organized a fantastic uh, mission trip, and he came to the east side 
of downtown Vancouver. We all know that's a great missions trip. So he brought his youth group, and everything was going well. He had a well-organized, great bunch of kids, and they were getting impacted by the street life, the conversations, and the ministry going on with all of our friends on the streets there. And Brent knew that this is so good for my sheltered, white-collar kids, and he actually admitted to me that there wasn't a whole lot in it for him. He was just doing it more for the kids because him's like, until he met the next guy who made the street his home. He was really down and out. He was bummed out. He had nothing, almost like he had nothing to live for. But what was different about this guy? Well, Pastor Brent tells me that this guy also used to be a pastor. Then all of a sudden, the light went on. The light went on. What is it that took this guy out of the pastorate? Don't get me wrong, it could happen to anybody. But what happened in his life to discourage him, to help him compromise, or what kind of discouragement came that he had lost the vision that God had called him to? So I want to ask you the same thing. What is holding you back from realizing that God is up to something? We want to move forward together, whatever God is calling us as a church, White Rock Community Church. We want to move forward together. Is there something holding you back? Could it be that you're thinking about compromise? Could it be that you might be a discourager and you've been planted here or maybe you don't even realize it, but the evil one is actually using you to hold the rest of the community back? I think you can do that. I think you can sit here and have a a good relationship with the Lord most times, but suddenly you turn around and you go, wow, I bellyache all the time. Or I've been pulling people back. I've been holding us back from our potential. I don't know. What is holding you back from realizing that God is up to something? And just like Nehemiah, all this was coming against him. But it's important that we don't sit around and suck back the lies or suck back the discouragement or that we're sifted, that we're alone, but that we stand tall together knowing that God is calling us to move forward together and impact our community for Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the worship team today. I thank you, Lord, that they uh, did an outstanding job of uh, presenting some beautiful truths in the music that they presented and also in the creativity. All this stuff comes from the throne of God. And I thank you for for your word. Um, I thank you that it's alive and active, sharp, in that it has something to say to us today. And I would ask, Lord Jesus Christ, that if some of us are sitting here discouraged, if some of us even have been used, even subtly, by the evil one to be discouragement, to be pulling back the rest of the church or pulling back a few people from their spiritual growth, Lord, convict us of that sin too. Father, start with me. If there's something in me that it's holding back, my brothers and sisters, Lord, put a finger on it so that I can change. And Father, each one of us, I really do believe, Our desire is not to be conformed to this world. Our desire is to be transformed. And we can't transform each other. You're the one that transforms us by the renewing of our mind. Lord, if we're a part of compromise, if we're a part of tearing other people down, 
if we're a part of even not paying attention to the afterglow of victory, help us, Lord, to be sharp. Help us to be discerning and help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear. Because, Lord, we want to move forward together. We have this relationship with Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we want to share it with others. Go before us, Lord. Encourage us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.